right, look with me please, Second uh, John, or 2 John as some would say, the second epistle of John, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 and just read through the first three verses this evening. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Last week I explained as we were considering an overview of this second epistle, of only 13 verses, very brief uh, epistle, very short epistle, especially in lighter in comparison to the previous, which of course consists of five chapters and multiple verses within each chapter. But I also explained last week, or reminded you, that in, within the second epistle, we see it to be the content to be very similar to that of John's first epistle, although again, the second epistle is much more concise and, and, and much more brief. And within the second epistle, John addresses not only the compatibility of truth and love, or, or love and truth, but he also emphasizes their interde- interdependence. And so John explains that not only love and truth are not enemies, or, and that they are not competitors, but that they also are, are not independent of one another, but they are interdependent meaning they are dependent upon one another. In verses 1 through 3, which we just read, then verse 6, let's read these together. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you and mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And this is love, verse 6, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Among many other truths concerning this epistle, last week I also pointed out uh, some of the key words of this epistle and the overall theme of the epistle. And the key words, we've read them already uh, this evening, and you, hopefully they have stood out to you as they did, I believe, again last week. But the word truth is found five times within these 13 verses, and that's within verses 1 through 4. The word love is found four times, verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 6. And Christ, the name Christ, or title Christ, is found four times in verse 3, 7, and 9. And so the overall theme we discovered last week is that uh, is concerning this matter of love and truth or truth and love. And while John's first epistle focuses whether or not one's professed fellowship with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ is authentic, as we've seen clearly in our study over the past many months in John's first epistle. John's second epistle focuses on maintaining the purity of this fellowship by valuing this fellowship and the means by which such fellowship is realized. And we see that again in verse 3 and verse 6. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And this, verse 6, this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. So we see that John says, grace be with you, peace from God the Father. He says, in truth and love. And then verse 6, and this is love that we walk after his commandments. So he is saying, he's greeting them, of course, in grace and mercy and peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he explains not only in the first epistle, the authenticity or the evidence which proves one the authenticity or professed authenticity of one's fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God the Father, and therefore with one another as well. But 
here he is saying that we are to value and appreciate that which provides such fellowship or the means by which this fellowship is realized. And he says, this is love that we walk after his commandments. And so now we're talking about following after Christ in obedience and, and submitting unto God the Father. And this is, this is the means by which we experience or realize on a daily basis the fellowship that we have provided to us through Christ by God the Father. And so we are to value this. That, that's the point here. We've been given fellowship with God the Father, and we've been given fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've been given fellowship with one another. Now let's value that fellowship. And how do we value it? By living in submission to the truth of God. In com- this is love. And this is how our love is experienced or demonstrated, is by walking in truth. This is love that we walk after His commandments. And so here John is explaining what love actually is. Now, as I've mentioned, while many today believe that one must compromise love for truth or truth for love, John clearly refutes such an idea within this letter. Love and truth are not enemies, but friends. And true love is is experienced and expressed in truth, and truth is to be demonstrated and expressed through love, as Scripture commands. If you have truth and there's no love accompanied by truth, uh, or there's no, if you have truth not accompanied by love, then that can, that can be very, uh, even though it's true, it can be, come across very harshly. It can come across very, uh, as though it would be hurtful, even though truth is not hurtful itself. It is helpful, though it may hurt at times. But yet, we are to have truth accompanied by love, and our love is to always be focused and rooted and grounded in truth. And again, John says, this is love that we keep or walk after his commandments. So here is love. So you cannot have this genuine biblical love apart from truth, but truth should always be accompanied by love. Again, uh, Paul writes concerning uh, being rooted and grounded and not being tossed about by every wind of doctrine and such. And then John, or Paul says, but speaking the truth in love might be, might be built up, might, be grow, might grow together and, and become that which is honoring and glorifying to God as a body of Christ. And so Paul was teaching and warning in Ephesians, I believe it is, that he was saying that we are not to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but again, we are to be rooted and grounded, and, and speaking the truth in love, we might be built up together, we might be edified together as a body. And so he associates here both truth and love as, as going hand in hand, one with the other. This uh, short epistle has five divisions within it, in these 13 verses. Verses 1 through 3 is the first. Verses 4 through 6 is the second, verses 7 through 11 is the third, and verse 12 is the fourth, and verse 13 is the fifth in the final verse. This evening we will begin our study of this epistle by examining the first of these five divisions of this epistle, which consists of verses 1 through 3. And I know we've read this already many times, so let's just read it together again. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. When writing to the church at Ephesus, Paul explained that the Lord had given leadership to the church. He says here that we henceforth be no... I referenced this a moment ago, Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head even Christ, from whom the body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, 
maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So here Paul again is saying we are to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, meaning we are to be rooted in truth. But then he says, speaking the truth in love, that the church may grow and edify itself in love and be built up in Christ, which is truth. So we approach our study of this book, Second John, with, uh, with the understanding that love and truth are to be equally expressed, equally demonstrated, and equally received. Now consider this for a moment. People will readily receive what they consider to be love, or love, won't they? Oh, you show love to someone? Oh, and that's so appreciated and welcomed. But the same people who would so willingly uh, accept or receive love are not always so willing to receive truth. And love and truth together ought each to be received, expressed, and demonstrated equally. In other words, to prefer one above the other or to reject one over the other is to misunderstand both. So if one is to reject truth or if one is to to prefer love over truth or if one is to reject truth over love then or vice versa in either case, the reality is that individual does not understand either love nor truth. And so we must recognize what it is, and John is helping us to see that within this epistle. So let's look at the introduction in verses 1 and 2. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Now, as I previously mentioned, the united relationship of love and truth are a paramount theme within this epistle, and we're beginning to see that even, I think, again this evening being emphasized. And we see this continually emphasized within the first two verses of this introduction within this epistle. We further see this emphasis in the following verses, verses 4 through 6. Let's read those. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. So these verses clearly emphasize the union of love and truth, most evident in John's statement in verses 5 and 6 when he says, Love one another, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. So the command is to love one another, but then he again expresses what this love is. How is this love demonstrated? And by the way, notice, I think John is showing us here as well, that we are to love one another, but we cannot love one another as Scripture is commanding apart from living in the truth of God's word. And so he's connecting this love. Oh, love one another. Here's the commandment. That in itself is a command, but you cannot follow that commandment without living a life uh, which is applying itself, unless you're applying yourself totally to the truth of God. And so people say, oh, love your neighbor. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, yeah, but God's command extends beyond loving your neighbor. First, we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Then love our neighbor, not only as we love ourselves, but as Jesus said, that was the old commandment. The new commandment is that you love one another even as I have loved you, Jesus said. So in order for that to be reality, we must be living in the truth of Christ for that type of love to be demonstrated, his love to be demonstrated in and through our lives. So again, when he says love one another, and this is love, He's connecting our demonstration of love for one another to the truth of God's commandments. He says that we walk after his commandments. 
Now, although love is only mentioned once in the first two verses, and truth is mentioned three times, both love and truth are implied multiple times within these first two verses. In other words, we can read verses 1 and 2 as follows. So let's read this a little differently. And, and this is what the text is actually saying. It's just there are, are uh, all these words, as you'll hear as I'm explaining to you, it, they may not be present within the text, but they are implied within the text. So let's look at it. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only love in the truth, but also all they that have known the truth love in the truth who love in the truth for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Did you see that? So the implication here, this, the Scriptures don't say that every single time, but this is the implication. John is setting this foundation, and he's saying that we love, he says, I love in the truth, but not only I, but also they that have known the truth. What is he saying? Not only I what? Not only I love in the truth, but also all they that know the truth also love in the truth. Who love in the truth for the truth's sake? The reason they love in the truth is because of truth itself. And so John is explaining this here and saying, this is where this love is derived. This is the source of this love is that it is rooted and grounded and flows from truth. Last week, we addressed the matter of the elect elder and elect lady in which I explained the different views considered within this greeting. In the overview of this epistle, I mentioned that 1 John is referred to as a general epistle. While the second epistle of John is not believed to have been written to a general audience, as indicated in the introduction, 2 John, verse 1, the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. So while John does not name an individual specifically within the second epistle, as I mentioned again last week, I will say again tonight, that he does name Gaius in his third epistle. So in the first epistle, notice this is kind of interesting if you consider it. In the first epistle, it's a general epistle. He does not name any church, any specific person, or any specific uh, group other than just a broad, a broad address to the churches in reality. He doesn't say that, but it is a general epistle, not written to any specific person nor church. But then he comes to chapter or to the second epistle, and now he addresses the elect lady and her children. And so, again, whether this is an actual individual, a woman that's just unnamed, or whether this is referencing a church body specifically, either way, this is not considered to be the general epistle because it's addressed to a specific person or group if this is referencing a church body, which is not, again, uncommon. And we find an example of this when Paul refer, refers to the church as a bride or chaste virgin espoused to Christ. And so, again, it's not an uncommon thing for a biblical writer to refer to the church using feminine gender noun or pronoun. And so this is just something that it, 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 we don't know for certain. No one knows for certain whether this is to a specific lady or whether this is to... A church body. But again, it really doesn't matter because either way, the fact that we don't know, if we were supposed to know, we would be told clearly, I believe, or it would be able to be researched to be understood. But however, regardless, whether it is to a specific lady or a specific church body, again, I mentioned last week, I will say that, that this is irrelevant in terms of the truth that is explained or emphasized here because we have an understanding of it nonetheless, whether this is a an individual, or whether this is a church body as a whole, specifically being addressed. I also told you last week, the final verse of this chapter also raises some question as to whether John has written this epistle to an individual or a church body. In verse 13, when he says, the children of thy elect sister greet thee, amen. And the elect sister 
could refer to the actual sister of this lady, obviously, to whom John has written, or this elect sister could refer to a sister church or sister body of believers. And so again, it's not something we know for certain. It's not something that we're able to, to say with any, uh, any uh, absolute authority that this is written to an individual lady or to a, a group, a body of Christ, a specific church body. So let's look at the greeting itself. This is really interesting in the greeting in verse 3. Grace be with you, mercy and peace, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, Paul has greeted, some of, in some of his epistles, Paul has greeted in a very similar manner. Grace and mercy unto you, peace from God our Father, from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has, has made this greeting. And again, when we read these, so often what we, are, we tend to do many times, I think, is kind of just overlook the importance of what's being stated, because to us, grace mercy and peace to you. We view that as though it's just like Paul saying, hey, how are you doing? Type, type introduction. Or, hey, you know, greetings unto you. But really, this is much more than that. Though this is a greeting, it, this is not to be viewed as though, let, let me say it to you like this, we must remember that this is still Holy Writ. And so this is not merely someone just filling in space on a page in order to meet their uh, required uh, number of words for a, an essay. <laughs> but rather, this is something that Paul is writing with the most sincere desire that these truths be expressed and experienced. Uh, He's expressing them, desiring that those to whom he writes, and John in this case is expressing these, desiring those whom he writes would experience such truths. So John is not writing as neither did Paul in just a casual sense when he writes these words, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Now, John's greeting in verse 3 extends from his declaration in verse 2. We've already read this, but let's go back now because we need to understand why he is greeting in this manner and what precedes it. Notice the last part part of verse 2. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you. Mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The verb dwelleth is in the present tense. And it means to reside or abide. So John declares that the truth is presently residing in these believers, in this church or in this woman to whom he writes. John declares that the truth is presently residing, presently abiding. Notice again, grace be with you, I'm I'm sorry, verse 2, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. So John also declares not only that this truth is present with them, but also shall be with us forever. So John says, this truth dwells in us. But he also says, it shall be with us. Now the verb shall be is in the future tense. So John explains that the truth which dwells in us now will always be with us. Jesus Christ, of course, is the very personification of the truth of God. He is love of God, the love of God in flesh, as demonstrated and manifested. He is the truth of God in the flesh, as demonstrated and manifested. He is the glory of God in the flesh, as manifested and demonstrated. And we must recognize when John says the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. He is not just speaking about some known fact or some 
doctrine alone, just some teaching. He says the truth dwelleth in us, and the truth shall be with us forever. And if Jesus is the personification of the truth of God, and he is, he is presently in us and will be with us forever. At the present moment, there is no moment, there is no situation, there is no circumstance in which Jesus Christ is not already dwelling in us by the very presence of His Spirit which abides in us. Yet, there is not a moment in eternity in which we will enter. The moment we pass from this life into eternity in which Christ will not be with us and we will be with Him. I've said many times, as long as I am in this life, Christ is with me. And the moment I enter into eternity, leaving this present life, I will be forever with Him. But either way, He is with me, or I am with Him. And notice how John words this. For truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Isn't that interesting? Truth's sake, the truth dwells where? In us and shall be with us. Recognize this truth right now. Christ is in me, but in eternity I will be with him and he will be with me. Do you see what's happening here? John is speaking of truth, and I believe we can look at this as though it's personified in Christ because Christ is the truth of God, and His truth is in us right now and forever will be with us. It's upon the basis of this truth, as John stated in verse 2, that the greeting within verse 3 is founded. Grace be with you. So again, notice, the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever, grace be with you. Mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, grace, of course, as you've heard me define many times, is God giving me what I do not deserve. I have received grace. That is the kindness, the favor, the goodness of God. That's what grace literally is. So I have received favor, kindness, and goodness of God. And I don't deserve that. Then mercy. Mercy contrasted with grace Grace is me getting what I do not deserve. God has given me that which I don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve. So I deserve condemnation, I deserve wrath, I deserve judgment. Yeah, I do not receive that because of mercy. But it's not only that God has had mercy on me, that's one thing. Here's what I'm saying to you. If God were to spare us from eternal damnation, that would be merciful. Would it not? But God's not only done that. He has given us Christ, and He has promised us an eternity with Him. That is grace. Because it's not just God is keeping me from what I do deserve. God has given me something I could never deserve. And so He says, grace be with you. God's continual presence be with you. God's favor and kindness be with you. And we know it will be. How do we know that? Because the truth dwells in us and shall be with us. And mercy. God not giving me what I deserve. But then he mentions peace. Now this is interesting. 
But I believe within this context, it's very clear what John is saying. Grace. God has given you and me what we do not deserve. Mercy. God is not giving you and not giving me what we do deserve. And it results, grace and mercy results in an eternal peace with Him. Because He has not given me what I do deserve, because He has given me that which I do not deserve, I am at absolute peace with Him. Let me explain this again. What if I only received mercy and not grace? In the sense of God just simply did not give me what I do deserve, does that mean I'd be at peace with Him? Not necessarily. But God has given me grace and mercy, so God not only has prevented me from what I rightly deserve my end, but He has given me grace and that His favor and kindness is poured out into me in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, I am reconciled to God at perfect peace with Him. I think sometimes we do not really pay enough attention to this matter of peace with God. But remember, God has reconciled us to Himself and brought peace brought us to peace with Him through the blood of the cross of Christ, through His death. And it's a wonderful thing that we are at peace with God, and we must recognize the significance of this, because no matter what happens in my life, I am at peace. We've seen this with God. We, we've seen this as well in Ephesians chapter 6 over the past many months of study, where we observe that we are to have our feet shod with the gospel of peace. And he mentions peace in the midst of spiritual warfare. So he's not talking about peace in the midst of the warfare itself, not being at war. He's talking about peace with God despite the warfare. Because of Christ, the good news of Jesus, now I'm at peace with God. And so this grace and this mercy results in eternal peace with God. This grace, mercy, and peace which God mentions find their source in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John further emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of the Father and that all those blessings are provided in love and truth. So grace is in love, mercy is in love, and peace is in love. Grace is in truth, and mercy is in truth, and love is in truth. He's greeting the reader, and he's saying, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and His Son, in Love and truth. So grace is in love and truth. Mercy is in love and truth. Peace is in love and truth. This greeting is in love and truth. But is Jesus not love, the love of God personified? Is Jesus not the truth of God personified? So the very blessings of God the Father flow from the Son, from Him to, through the Son to us. And notice what He says here. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Why does he mention the Son of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ being the Son of the Father? In truth and love. All these blessings of God are provided in the Son of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So this grace is in Christ, it's in love and truth. This mercy is in Christ, in love and truth. This peace is in Christ, in love and truth. Is Christ not love and truth? Can you separate those? No. You can't have the love of God in Christ without the truth of God in Christ. 
And to know the truth of God in Christ is to know the love of God in Christ. That's the only way you'll ever come to that truth is by His love, as it's been demonstrated in His Son. We live in a day in which people put an extreme emphasis on love, yet do so not only disregarding truth, but do so while even expressing a great disdain for truth. Love, 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 yes, but in truth. Yet we are told that the grace of God, the mercy of God, and peace of God are all rooted in truth and love, which finds its source from God the Father and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So while people long for grace, and they long for mercy, and they long for peace, they do so so often, demanding love, at the same time declaring a hatred for truth. And you can't have love without truth. Nonetheless, there is no love apart from the truth of God's expressed love in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, despite what people do, who is both the love and truth of God manifested in the flesh. So John's emphasis of love and truth here, what was the entire emphasis in the previous epistle? Fellowship. Fellowship with God the Father, with His Son, with one another, because God the Father and God the Son. And then all of the evidence that points to whether or not this is authentic Fellowship, which is professed based upon the evidences provided in these tests that John provides. And now he's saying value and cherish the means by which this fellowship is experienced. And that is that we are walking in truth and love or walking in love and truth and recognizing that to walk and this is love that we keep his commandments. Well, what does that mean? If we really love Christ, that's the only way we're ever going to really love the brethren. And if we love Christ and we love the brethren, then we will love His commandments and we will submit to the Lord and we will walk in His truth. And therefore, love will be demonstrated and manifested through our lives truthfully because we are rooted and grounded in both love and truth. So John mentions this multiple times here, and there's a reason he does so. And it's important that we recognize the significance of these statements, that we not be misled or fall into the trap or ensnared as well by those who would say, oh, love, love, love. And yet, it's so interesting, isn't it? The same ones who preach so much love profess and demonstrate an absolute hatred for truth. Very odd, isn't it? Not really. I mean, not we should understand that that's why, because they want their... Here's, here's the thing. When you want love as you define it, you have to disregard truth because God's love and love as God defines it is not how man defines it at all. Men define love as tolerance. But if God just expressed tolerance toward us, we'd all be damned. Wouldn't we? Love confronts us where we are. Love calls us out. And we are transformed by the love of God because of the truth of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these, these matters of love and truth, they're not enemies. They are friends and close friends of that. And they are inseparable within the context in which John speaks of them. So may we walk in truth and love. And this is love. We keep His commandments. This is love that we love what He loves. That we cherish what He cherishes. This is love as He's already expressed in the first epistle. 